for Collins. We are going to start with a conversation with Scott Sandell, general partner at NEA. Scott is an amazing investor. He's been on the Forbes Miles list every year since 2007. He has led investments in a lot of really seminal companies in our industry, you know, Salesforce.com, WebEx, which is what we are on right now. WebEx, if you, if you look at Salesforce.com and WebEx, when they started way back when in 1999, 98, 99 timeframe, cloud was a foreign concept. So, so it took a lot of visionary entrepreneurship and visionary investing to, you know, bring these concepts into fruition. Of course, Salesforce then paved the way for, a, for the whole cloud category to really take off. Um, Scott has also invested in Tableau Software, Workday, Fusion.io, Bloom Energy, data domain, data domain, and so forth. And uh, many of these are unicorns. Tableau, Salesforce, WebEx, Workday, Fusion.io, all these are unicorn companies. Um, Tableau is in the Billion Dollar Unicorns book. We have a wonderful case study um, on the company. So Scott, welcome. It's, it's a real great pleasure to have you. And, and you know, what thrills me is that NEA is the first VC fund that I ever worked with. So it's kind of momentous. <laughs> well, it, it's great to be on your program, Shramana, and, uh, and I'm just thrilled to see what you're doing. Uh, I think it's, it's uh, you, you, you were ahead of your time, I suppose the same way I was in investing in WebEx before anybody, and Salesforce before anybody, coined the term SaaS. I remember going to a conference where I was invited to speak about SaaS and I didn't know what it was. Um, and uh, similarly, you, um, you figured out that entrepreneurship was going to happen everywhere, was happening everywhere, and that maybe some of the ideas that have helped these companies be successful here would be helpful to others. So I'm thrilled to be on your 250th program and congratulations for your success. Thank you. You know, you just uh, gave me a segue into one topic that probably we should start with is this concept of being ahead of time. I have this, I've had a tendency of being ahead of time. I think I've been ahead of time with every single company that I've done. And by the time I got to this one, you know, one million by one million is a regular startup. It's not a nonprofit or a foundation. I, at least by, by this time, I realized that I had this tendency of being ahead of the time. So I decided not to put this on a venture capital clock. And, um, and and decided to bootstrap, and I had offers for VC money, and I didn't take it. And so far, we have run a bootstrap profitable company for the last four years. So um, you have, I, I know two of these case studies that you have invested in Tableau and WebEx really, really intimately. Um, I know Subra very well, Christian. I met qu quite a long time ago, and uh, you had just invested in the company. But both of these entrepreneurs had used this technique of bootstrap first and raise money later. Can you talk about what you saw when they came to you? Sure. Um, well, they're both wonderful stories. I think uh, in the case of WebEx, since it happened first, uh, Subra and I went to see Subra and Min. Uh, I want to say it was in 1998 or 1999. Um, they uh, they had the company. In fact. It had originated as a different company like Quadradec or something like that, which they sold to somebody else and then bought some of the IP back. And anyway, it was a fairly long journey before they actually got to the, the concept that we all know today as WebEx. Um, and then 
Uh, at that point, they were able to raise some money from Jan Bond, the founder of Bond Software, who was a fantastic supporter of theirs. Um, and uh, I think that was probably considered the Series A. Uh, and then we came along in what would have been the Series B uh, as the first venture investor. Uh, and to answer your question, at that time, they had launched the service we now know as WebEx about six months before, uh, and it was growing very nicely. So I want to say in the first quarter, they maybe had $50,000 in revenue. In the second quarter, they had $100,000 in revenue, and they were on their way to $250,000 in revenue the quarter, and I met them in the middle of the third quarter. And uh, to me, what was uh, obvious about WebEx is that uh, first of all, the, the market was speaking. It was growing very fast. It was one of these uh, services which I really uh, always try to look for, which are things that are really easy to use and have tremendous and value to lots and lots of people. Uh, and that was certainly the case with WebEx. Uh, it was also the first company which uh, uh, sort of introduced me to the concept of virality. I had never invested in a company before where the very use of the product introduces it to other users. Yeah. And of course, with WebEx, that's naturally the case. And in early days, it was um, even more pronounced because the service was most often used by salespeople to, uh, to make presentations to their prospective customers who were often other salespeople. And so it, um, it just grew like crazy without any marketing whatsoever at least in the early days. I mean, famously, they went on to uh, you know, spend quite a lot of energy and money building the brand that we know today, which is, uh, as you may know, the only brand uh, ever retained after an acquisition by Cisco. Right. So, folks, those of you who don't know the history of WebEx, the company went public and then eventually was acquired by Cisco for, was it $8 billion, something like that? Three, um, $3.2 billion. $3.2 billion, okay. Um, so it was a very, very successful story and, and uh, it was one of the two first cloud companies in the history of the business. Now, um, I want to get to Salesforce.com, but uh, let me actually first get to Tableau before we get to Salesforce.com because it's, we, it's a more contemporary company and, and we have discussed Tableau and I've written about Tableau quite a lot recently. So. Uh, my understanding of Tableau was by the time they came to NEA for their uh, funding, the company not only had customers and revenues, it also had done a very interesting OEM deal with Hyperion Software. Um, tell us a bit about what you saw in Tableau and, and you know, what gave it such, it seems like an incredibly capital efficient company that generated immense return on investment. Well, I think Tableau is, in, at least as far as I know, uh, probably the most extraordinary company in modern history uh, in, in terms of capital efficiency. Um, we invested uh, $5 million, I think it was in the summer of 2004, about a year after the company started. Um, as you rightly point out, uh, the founders uh, of this company, Chris Stolte, uh, Pat Hanrahan, who's a professor at Stanford and was Chris's thesis advisor and has been uh, really sh the co-creator, co-founder, and shepherd and mentor to a number of really successful companies, some of which we've been involved in. Um, Lytra would be another example. Um, anyway, uh, the two of them teamed up with Christian 
who Chris had co-founded a company with before that, and which uh, had been sold to Vicinity, I believe, providing a modest amount of liquidity to the two of them, which I think is what enabled them uh, to be able to bootstrap Tableau. But uh, to be clear, this was not a situation where they had you know, a huge amount of money and could enjoy whatever lifestyle they wanted while they took their time to leisurely start another company. Uh, they, they explicitly decided to downgrade their lifestyle. Uh, they moved to Seattle, which was cheaper than the Bay Area. Uh, they had other reasons to move there as well, but that was one of them. Um, in early days, the company was run out of their garage or their attic in somebody's basement. I don't know. I never went there. Unfortunately, I would have liked to. But uh, by the time they got to us, as you point out, they had um, they had an OEM deal with Hyperion, uh, which was later sold to, to Oracle, um, which lasted them about four years and provided during that time an average of about a million and a half dollars a year in revenue. Naturally. Uh, there was a fair amount of engineering effort required to support that OEM contract, but nevertheless, um, it provided some really nice early fuel, that you know, non-dilutive equity, if you will, which meant that uh, when we came along, um, they were able to raise money at a time when valuations were in the single digits for a Series A. Remember, 2004 was not an easy time to raise money, especially for what was then a Windows desktop software application being sold for a couple thousand dollars a seat. In other words, there was no obvious way to sell it uh, profitably. They had to invent an entire model, which we can talk about, uh, to do that. But, but nevertheless, um, we invested $5 million at a $20 million valuation, which was considered incredibly lofty at the time. But it, um, it enabled the founders to retain a huge stake in the company. We ended up uh, investing in some subsequent rounds uh, to provide um, more, you know, more of a balance sheet for the company than anything. Uh, but the the important point is that they never used more than 1.7 million dollars of the original 5 million to build the business, which, as you know, uh, was about a 400 million dollar revenue business last year. It's grown 78 percent for the last four years, um, making it the fastest growing software company at scale in history. So it's it, the reason I love this story is uh, that's really the philosophy we are trying to espouse in One Million by One Million is this notion of bootstrap capital efficient entrepreneurship and the philosophy of bootstrap first, raise money later. You know, a lot of what we call infant entrepreneur mortality happens when you go and the first thing you do, you get up in the morning and decide you want to be an entrepreneur, and then you decide the next thing you need to do is go out and hit up some VCs. This is not the way to build companies. It doesn't work. And uh, so we've, you know, now at least we've, with a, with a lot of case studies and a lot of input from very experienced entrepreneurs, we have been able to make this point. You know, the other thing that our entrepreneurs around the world are facing is a tremendous problem with the media. You know, the media likes to cover funded companies. They're not going to write about companies that are not funded and are bootstrapping and doing well. So from, right from the beginning, the media platform that we have built has been, has maintained as its, you know, principle that we will support companies that are building, that have customers, revenues, profit maybe, maybe not, but if you're bootstrapping, you kind of have to have some profits to be able to sustain. But we don't require that financing needs to be part of that equation to cover these companies. 
As a result, we have been able to identify and, and bring to light a lot of companies that nobody wrote about, nobody paid attention to, and in particular, uh, those of you who have attended the series earlier on um, this year, uh, we had a show where uh, the Aaron Sconard, the CEO of Pluralsight, was here. You know, when I met Pluralsight, nobody had written about them. They were a little company from Utah. But then if you look in there, it was not a little company. They were doing $12 million of revenue. It's in the online education space. They teach, uh, they have all sorts of content for teaching, programming, and, and all kinds of technical disciplines. They were already doing $12 million a year. And uh, after uh, we wrote about them sometime, not too far from then, they started raising money. Today they're a unicorn company. They've raised $130 million, $140 million. They've acquired several companies. They're following a roll-up strategy. So this principle of you know, building value, building customers, building you know, some amount of revenue, and you can choose when to go to investors, but I think what the stories that Scott has told you just now kind of reinforce this point that has come out come up over and over again in our work. You know, we've touched over 5,000 companies in the last 10 years. Over 350 of those have emerged as highly valued companies and over 40 unicorns already. And there are a lot of other highly valued companies in our coverage that will emerge as unicorns, I believe. So we have now heard from a very, very large number of entrepreneurs and their strategies and their techniques. And we've heard from investors like Scott who are a lot of them have reinforced this point. So this is one takeaway for all of you to remember. Scott, I'm going to switch topics a bit and ask you about can global. I, uh, Shramana, can I, can I comment on your, your underlying thesis there for a second? Please do. Um, I, I think there are, uh, just to be clear, I've, I've uh, been fortunate enough to have invested in and been a part of uh, a number of unicorn, unicorn companies, I think eight to be, in total, um, and not all of them were bootstrap companies. Right. Um, Absolutely. So, so I don't think that is an essential ingredient at all. But I think what's interesting is to think about why bootstrapping is is a valuable discipline, and why some of the uh, companies have chosen to bootstrap and and what it did for them. Uh, and I think the the first and most fundamental thing is that it establishes an entrepreneur's commitment what they're doing uh, because they have to you know if you invest your own capital or you take a lower salary thereby in you know indirectly investing your own capital and time in something uh, you become much more committed to uh, making that company successful than if you just start off by taking somebody else's money which to some people today, it seems like an almost casual activity. I don't mean to be, make light of it, but um, it brings me to the second point, which is that, and you touched on this earlier in your own thinking, uh, Shramana, which is that when you decide to take somebody else's capital, whether it's a venture capitalist, uh, professionally managed capital, or an angel investor's personal capital, uh, you, you are no longer on the journey by yourself and you have taken on the responsibility of figuring out how to make the company successful, not just for yourself, but also for your investors. It's the same decision you make when you hire your first employee. 
it's fine when it's just you or you and a couple of founders who have all decided to take the same risk. But when you hire your first employee or your first employees, you're now responsible for them as well. And that, I think, is a, is a huge decision. Um, it often comes with uh, expectations. Employees expect your company is going to grow and be successful and be a good place for them to work. Investors expect that your company is going to grow and ultimately become profitable and valuable. And these are things that uh, you may or may not want to take on as responsibilities at the beginning. I mean, after all, most entrepreneurs start out with some idea which isn't exactly fully baked, and they're not entirely sure whether it's really going to work. And so I think it's really valuable to get to the point where you're committed to the company you've started and you, you believe in its success before you hire an employee or take on somebody else's money. And experimenting on venture capital money is very, very expensive. Um, you know, if you run out of money while your experimentation is not complete, the chances of you're going out of business is very high. Whereas you're experimenting on your own money, that's nobody's going to, you're not going to go out of business as long as you can manage your cash flow and, and keep going. Um, the other thing I want to call out, and, and Scott started to go in that direction, is that not all companies are necessarily as easy to bootstrap. So if you're doing something in very high in infrastructure, uh, very highly technical infrastructure products and so forth, those tend to be fat startups. And, and although I've seen some companies bootstrap very capital-intensive projects, but largely those tend to be done as fat startups and you have to raise money up front. The problem is in the industry for first-time entrepreneurs to get financing to do fat startups is not at all easy. Um, so there are, you know, for our audience, we cater vastly to first-time entrepreneurs. We have some serial entrepreneurs, but it vastly is something that we are trying to teach a very large number of entrepreneurs what to do. That's why we emphasize so heavily on bootstrapping as a way to get in the market. And the other thing is the investor psychology has changed quite a lot in the last, um, you know, five, seven, ten years because it's, this lean startup movement has taken so much momentum and it's become so much cheaper to get something going, getting something validated. Investors are expecting, even seed investors are expecting that you're going to come to them with validation. And that has changed the early stage capital game completely. So to Well, I think it's also, it's also worth noting, Sharmana, that the venture capital industry itself has contracted enormously um, in, in both dollar terms and, and more importantly, in terms of the number of, of individual venture capitalists and venture capital firms. Uh, I don't have the exact data off the top of my head, but um, anecdotally I would say the NVCA probably had 800 members in 2000, today has 400 members, and of the 400, you know, probably 100 are really active in the United States. The NBCA mm -hmm. is the National Venture Capital Association, which is the industry association in the U.S. Um, and, you know, of the 100, a huge amount of the capital is concentrated in the top dozen or so. So there, it, it makes the challenge of raising money, I think, that much harder. Yeah. And, and I think the, the counterpoint to that is that entrepreneurship is happening at a much larger scale, right? It's happening globally. It's happening. It's become cool to be entrepreneurs. When, when 
we were starting out in, in the mid-90s, it was not cool to be entrepreneurs. It was cool to go work for somebody else. Um, now it's very cool to be entrepreneurs. You're, if you drop out of MIT or, or Stanford and start a company, that's a badge of honor. That's nothing to apologize for. And then if you choose to go back, fine. If you don't choose to go back, no problem. No one's going to you know, raise an eyebrow. So it's become very much standard fare in a career choice. And, and as a result, the level of experimentation, the volume of experimentation around the world has exploded, which actually brings us to our next question. Uh, now, NEA has actually had a global agenda for a long time now. Um, of course, 1M1M is a global program. What is your view of entrepreneurship on a global scale, and, and what are you thinking, what is NEA thinking in terms of uh, leveraging that opportunity and working with entrepreneurs around the world? Well, as you, you point out, Shimano, we've been doing it for a long time. I think it became obvious to, uh, to us in the mid-90s. We didn't start until a few years later, but in the mid-90s, uh, that the ingredients for really successful uh, startups and, and uh, the ability to build large and valuable companies, mostly from a technology foundation, was no longer uh, the province only of uh, entrepreneurs in the United States. Uh, we had, uh, we, I think our eyes were open to this uh, for a couple of reasons, one of which was that so many of the entrepreneurs we back uh, had come from other countries. Uh, in the U.S., as you may know, 49% of entrepreneurs backed by venture capital firms were born somewhere else, and it's a huge part of the reason why uh, the United States has been a, a successful hotbed of entrepreneurship for the last 50 years. So we, we saw through their eyes and their stories uh, what was happening elsewhere. I mean, WebEx, as a specific example, is the reason that I got to China in the first place. WebEx had 800 engineers in China early on because the, the technology foundation was very complex and required, you know, a huge amount of engineering, which was, frankly, unaffordable, especially in the bootstrapping stage of the company. Right. So Min Zhu, one of the co-founders, Subaru's partner, uh, and his wife, went to China and set up three development centers in China before anybody ever thought about doing that. And it was a key reason why the company was successful. Of course, we had many, many entrepreneurs from not only China, but India. And through their eyes and uh, invitations, we, we visited these places and we saw that the ingredients for success were more than prevalent. And I would just say today, I, I would say today, we are on the precipice of a a much more profound uh, globalization of entrepreneurship. And that has everything to do with uh, the infrastructure, the, the cloud and mobile infrastructure, which has now been built. I mean, as you know, billions of consumers around the world have smartphones, which look roughly like the power of a mainframe when we were born, uh, in their hands every day. And we all know what they can do, but um, I think, most importantly, as it relates to the entrepreneurial opportunity, they, they provide a platform for building businesses anywhere. Um, and we are certainly seeing through our network uh, businesses, very interesting businesses, being created uh, in places that, you know, people haven't thought of as, as hotbeds, hotbeds of entrepreneurship. And by that I mean, you know, countries in Africa, uh, the Middle East, um, even Western Europe, which 
of course, has had some really notable successes, but by and large is not viewed as a particularly entrepreneurial place. We're seeing incredible things coming out of Western Europe. So, what is your investment strategy vis-a-vis -vis all that? Um, do you invest in a certain set of geographies and or you have a set of offices and you cater to a broader hinterland through those? What, how do you structure your investments? Well, uh, our, our strategy, Shramana, is to essentially investigate new opportunities through investments. Uh, so we started out in India and China making investments in companies before we set up offices. And once we convinced, convinced ourselves of a broader opportunity, we set up offices in both those countries. Yeah. We don't currently have plans to set up offices in other places, but we've made uh, an investment in Brazil. We have a bunch of investments in Europe. We have some investments in the Middle East. Mm -hmm. uh, and I expect over time uh, we will uh, establish more of a presence in more places around the world uh, to support those efforts. So you, you are open to investing in remote geographies even without an office is the point. One of my investments last year was in Dubai, and I've never been to Dubai. Okay. Super. That's so that, that's might sound terribly that, might sound, that might sound radically irresponsible uh, to the ears <laughs> of our limited partners, but um, I, I'm comfortable with that. Well, you know, it's, it's actually very, it may be, whatever it may sound to your limited partners, it sounds like music to the ears of my entrepreneurs here because uh, they are all over the place. And, uh, you know, Silicon Valley had this extremely um, parochial habit of not wanting to invest outside of 30-minute or 45-minute drive from Sam Hill Road. So, so it's, it's very good to see that at least in some pockets that is changing. Yeah, well, I mean, I think uh, my view is it's if you want to be a, a global venture capital firm in the next 50 years, it's it's not an option to just stay in Silicon Valley. Silicon Valley is wonderful, and we're thrilled to be here. Uh, but NEA actually started uh, as a national venture capital firm in 1977, 78, um, with an office in Baltimore and one in San Francisco and three partners, two on the East Coast, one on the West Coast. And that meant that those partners uh, had to figure out how to operate with multiple offices, and that created the DNA and the business practices that made it much more natural and uh, and effective for us to start expanding overseas later on. And, and I have to say, you know, uh, folks, as you're listening to this, I, I want to tell you one story that is very intensely personal in my experience. Um, where NEA played a gigantic role, which launched my Silicon Valley career, I would say, is that uh, when I did Intarka, which was my second company that was, you know, spun out of my first company, the first company was a services company. I built the product, prototyped the product, and spun it out of there. A lot of that engineering, most of that engineering was done in India. And I'm talking 97, 98, 99 timeframe. At that time, building a product in India was not acceptable to Silicon Valley. And I had a dreadful time raising money in Silicon Valley. And I was the first, you know, I was doing, I was fundraising for the first time. I really had no experience and I was just building the network. So um, through that network, when I got to NEA, NEA didn't have a problem with have my engineering team being in India. And of course, this, you know, the, we closed the NEA funding uh, in January of 1999. If you fast forward that by about seven or eight years, 
the value completely changed. If you went out to shop a business plan with the investors, they'll turn around and ask you, what, where is your engineering team and what is your India strategy? It was, it was comical and I was sitting there almost whether, not knowing whether to laugh or cry because I had gone through such hell. And then that's what I mean by being ahead of time. And it's, it's not so much fun actually to be, be ahead of time. So um, the fact that NEA bailed me out of that situation is something that I'm very grateful for, that I could actually launch a Silicon Valley career for myself. So, Scott, thank you to NEA for, for playing that role in my career. Well, thank you, and you were one of the people that educated us about why that was a good idea. I mean, <laughs> like I said, that's how we found out about India, through our entrepreneurs. Same with right. China. Same with almost every other geography. I was an entrepreneur in residence at NEA um, and hanging out with you guys right after uh, the market crashed, and uh, we talked a lot about India at that point. Okay, well, uh, well and I, I, go ahead. No, no, go ahead, Sharma. That's fine. I was going to say, um, you know, I don't know how much time you have. I was, um, you know, I, I know we committed to 30 minutes, and if you want to, want to stay on, we can continue uh, talking about it. What I was going to do next is take um, everyone through what we have learned in this billion-dollar unicorns research, and I'll take you through the 17 companies, just give you a kind of pointers to what we've learned from the 17 companies that are in the book, but then remember I told you we have another 350 case studies that we have also drawn from and 40 of which are already unicorns, and there will be more from that portfolio. So I do have some common threads to point out, to call out. Um, if you want to hang around and, and, you know, participate in that conversation, you're most welcome to do so. Thank you. Um, unfortunately, I have to get to the office for, for a 9 o'clock meeting, but okay. I, I just want to say thank you again, and uh, I really commend you for what you're doing, and I I know it's of, of great value to the entrepreneurs that are starting companies all over the world and I hope will be part of their success. Thank you for coming, Scott. It's a pleasure having you. Okay, take care. Hope to see you soon. Bye-bye.